This is your favorite artist's favorite artist, where we explore the influences of well-known creatives. Are you ready to go? Yep. All right, so we're going to start out by uh, discussing Damien Hirst. So Damien Hirst was born in Bristol in 1965. He went to the Goldsmiths College in London. And Joe, when were you first exposed to his work? I probably saw some interview with him about the shark piece, which is, of course, what he's most known for. Uh-huh, yeah. And then uh, I got a book about economics of contemporary artwork. It's called The $12 Million Stuffed Shark. And it's kind of talking about the ridiculousness of art prices, how Damien Hirst plays a big part in that discussion. I found a quote here that I thought I would share. This is what he said. He said, there are four important things in life, religion, love, art, and science. At their best, they're all just tools to help you find a path through darkness. None of them really work that well, but they help. Of them all, science seems to be the one right now. Like religion, it provides the glimmer of hope that maybe it will be all right in the end. I felt like this quote really describes some of his most popular pieces, which a lot of them have to do with formaldehyde and you know anatomy of the human body and of animals. Yeah, absolutely. It kind of reminds me of the uh, Human Bodies exhibit. I don't know if you've ever been to that, but it shows pe- yeah, I went to people. In Chicago. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're like just chopped up, and it shows different organs, and it really gives you like this sense of like beauty and wonder in something as simple as like a scientific look at the human mind. Kind of with Hearst's sense of humor, he has a company. You know, he has like tons of artists working for him. And so his studio company is called Science. That's the name of it. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, and so he uses that because he asks for a lot of strange requests. And with the company named Science, it's a lot easier to get things done than if his company was like art or something like that. Oh, okay, yeah. Because, yeah, and he also has a a restaurant or a bar or something, and it's called Pharmacy. (laughs) So he, oh, yeah. he really likes the idea of, I guess, looking at his work as almost like a joke within the context of science. And yeah. Yeah, and it's funny. You think like um, as far as, you know, research and education goes, art kind of seems to be on the opposite spectrum of science in people's brains, but he really brings it together. Yeah, he kind of melds the two together. I think a lot of people, um, when you look at... I guess, astronomy or biology, there's a sense of facing death and wonder and mystery. And that's really what his art is all about, in my opinion, at least his good art. (laughs) The stuff he made as a graduate from the YBAs, the Uh Young British Artists, as they call them. A lot of people describe the Young British Artists movement of the, I suppose that would probably be the late 90s or early I don't know, the 90s or so, people say that's been the only real, powerful, impactful uh, artist movement, as far as not just like one artist making a change, but like an entire group of artists who really had like this specific vision of kind of using the found object as a way to explore both humor and the subconscious. Yeah, and we're going to talk about some of those other group members. So, yeah, let's move on and talk about Damien Hirst. Um, 
influences. Yeah, or just people who he respects who are even working as contemporaries. So we'll start with Blondie McCoy? Sure, yeah. Blondie McCoy is a, is a young uh, professional skater, actually. And he's an, a designer um, and an artist. He models for Vogue. Yeah, he he was on the <laughs> runway at uh, Virgil's Louis Vuitton show. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so then he's a professional skateboarder for Adidas and... Palace. Yeah, and he's from London. I Man, I'm trying to remember how old he is, but... He's probably less than 25 years old at yeah, this point. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, he's kind of like a personality. It's kind of interesting to see someone who's a skater who's very much like a like a posh he dresses kind of like a posh old man mixed with skater culture he's very european my favorite picture of of bonnie mccoy and damien hurst they're sitting in the back of a boat it looks like they're in venice yeah something. and they both just have like these dark sunglasses on and they're looking off in the distance <laughs> and yeah. damien has like a, a long gold chain and and blondie's wearing a zip-up hoodie yeah i think hurst likes to be pictured as almost uh, immature for his age, I think. I think he <laughs> really. Young. I think he likes that. He likes mm-hmm. that image of himself in the yeah. public. He likes to be kind of like ridiculous and immature, but <laughs> but um, in a good way, I guess. The thing that I think makes their work most similar is uh, Blondie has a lot of references to the the medical field, like a. Pharm- pharmacology and mm-hmm. kind of like a criticism of how quickly people are going to just pick up a drug and take it because a doctor mm-hmm. says so. Hearst talks a lot about that too, but Blondie McCoy for the first uh, bit of his teenage years, I guess, really struggled with uh, prescription drug addiction. Mm-hmm. So he's done um, clothing designs for... Uh, Thames, or yeah, Thames is probably how you say it. Um, and he... It's actually the, his own company. Yeah, and uh, so one of his own designs is the fairy tale collection in, in 2015. Yeah, um, one another thing I would say about him is like he's worked with Burberry and all these kind of high fashion brands. He's He very much has like a... But he's definitely has a very iconic style of his own, but it, it has a lot to do with kind of like rich young very european you know a lot of brands kind of like reach out to him because he's like definitely a personality which a lot of people would criticize maybe that's why his art is so successful is because people like the artist and sometimes being the artist is just as important as the art so when were you first exposed to blondie mccoy did, did you hear about him through damien hurst or no i probably heard about him for, through skateboarding because okay. i watch a lot of skateboard mm-hmm. videos and stuff so i'd just seen clips of him skating for palace one of the things he's really known for is his collages so he used to use cutouts from 70s and 80s magazines or newspapers that he found at a magazine shop on great windmill street but now he also uses pictures from his life, himself, and other modern day things. Yeah, it's, it reminds me very much of like Jeff Koons, Damien Hirst, just overly commercial and slightly kitschy, or, but definitely more abstract, so it's not quite so in reach of the regular art viewer. And, and the subjects are 
kind of uh, spread out on, on these collages. He has um, a whole exhibit of mirror collages. So it's things uh, taped or glued to a mirror so you can see yourself when you're looking at it. Um, but then you also see, it reminds me of like when people write little like notes of affirmation or something, mm, or they take pictures onto their mirror. So they see when they brush their teeth or such. That's what it reminds me of. But it has like, um, one of them has uh, the little cup from, with Chip, is that his name for Beauty and the Beast? Sure, yeah. Like a little teacups and cigarettes and very like, I guess the term is twee. And even like distorted pictures and some mix of like old art and then that collage right there (laughs) (laughs) i don't know it's a lot of like uh things you would probably find in an old british grandmother's house (laughs) because that's kind of what this young skateboarder that's kind of his style is old british grandmother (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um and so in, in one of his he had a a show um called us and chem and it was the 13 Mirror Works, and then a spin painting um, by Damien Hirst. Oh, right. So what Damien Hirst did is he's well known for these kind of like uh, controversial spin paintings that he based off of, uh, I believe, some kids show he watched one time. And anyway, so now like these these like basically just like fun painting uh, activities for children have become... Uh, you know, million-dollar paintings by Damien Hirst. Yeah. So, actually, while we're talking about the spin paintings, um, he, experiment, he experimented with them in 1992, and then he set up a spin art stall at a fair with Angus Fairhurst. Mm, I don't know who and it is. Then, so, apparently, um, he and this other performance artist, uh, Leigh Browery, um, they were at this... Lee Bowery, I Lee think. Lee Bowery, yeah. They were at this fair, and visitors... So they were dressed up as clowns, and visitors could pay one euro to create their own spin painting, and then they would sign them. Or they could pay another one euro for them to drop their pants <laughs> and show their oh painted my- bodies. <laughs> Oh my goodness. This is, wow, yeah, so uh, clearly Hearst is kind of making a commentary on kind of the ridiculousness of the art world and how much things cost. And And it was kind of along with this silly like performance art thing, so it seems very like whimsical. Sure, yeah. In in its foundation. um, My question is, if Hearst is making a lot of artwork that's basically just like a ridiculous object that you give to a ridiculous rich person, right? Mm -hmm. Is that really criticizing the art world? Or can you really criticize something while being hypocritical like that? Beats me. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's something to think about. And so then after he had that kind of experimentation in the early 90s with spin paintings, then in 1996, um, he had... A spin painting um, rotating mechanically on the wall of a gallery in New York, and um, and he this is what he said about it. He said um, he so he was living in Berlin when he had a spin machine that was made 
for him so he could create all of these different spin paintings. And he said, I really like making them and I really like the machine and I really like the movement. Every time they're finished, I'm desperate to do another one. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the only way he can get away with that is because he's already made... I mean, I'm not saying these spin works are not great. Sure, they may be, they might be amazing. That's not the point I'm trying to make. But artists aren't allowed to just do things for fun without being criticized by the art world. But because he did his time and made these like really interesting, morbid artworks, like a, <laughs> like a thousand years showing like a, a cow, car- a cow carcass being eaten by flies, because he created that work. Now that he's famous and everything he makes sells, he can just do whatever he wants, make spot paintings, spin paintings, whatever he likes. Yeah. <laughs> It's like his his art ranges, you know, from these colorful, fun spin paintings all the way to his more, you know, scientific artwork pieces like we were talking about. Um, yeah, but uh, what I was going to say about McCoy, I guess, is that Hearst did a spin painting and then uh, had McCoy collage his own like little objects on top of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, McCoy said that that his mirror show and he said the show was created out of a compulsion to create not one to show off throw a party or make money it's making has been a revelation in accepting the need to treat bipolar as a blessing rather than a curse and to perpetually guarantee myself that from long humdrum periods of heightened sensitivity my most genuine and life-affirming artwork is born so that's what was going on in his head when he was producing um, these mirror collages. That kind of just comes down to saying, like, what exactly? <laughs> that um, he's just having fun, basically, and that through his own mental issues, he's able to make his best art. Is that mm-hmm. kind of what he's yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the artists we're going to talk about, you know, they have similar statements of, of how their artwork is a way to work through their feelings or express their feelings or... Anyway. Yeah, but let's talk about more of Hearst's more morbid work, some of his earlier stuff. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, so I think a lot of that relates back to, uh, to Francis Bacon. Yeah, I think that was kind of Hearst's real first love (laughs) yeah i think he really uh was influenced by francis bacon quite a bit and bacon was an irish painter he was born in 1909 in dublin and he died in 1992 in spain his style is like chilling it's a lot of skin and bones um abstract figures just kind of like you know, faces that are almost screaming. And any description I would give would be kind of an insult, but I would say something in between Picasso and Tim Burton. You know, it's like just like these... (laughs) Yeah, that's a good... These just like really like horrifying um, uh, blobs that are screaming or look like they're chunks of meat or it doesn't really quite... So it's not, it's it's not Hearst, you know, polka dots. (laughs) Yeah, definitely not. More more on like the the death and the ferocious animal Mm -hmm. side of things yeah and so it's interesting there's a lot of similarities between Hearst's work and bacon's work for example i i'm thinking of one specifically where um there bacon 
painted um, a portrait in 1952. It was on display in Liverpool, and it shows um, himself sitting in a suit. Uh, That's a self-portrait, huh? Yeah. Interesting. Or maybe it's just study for a portrait. Okay. Anyway, it's a man sitting down in a suit with some sort of, it looks like a, a rod and curtain behind him that's blue. And then it's a black background and there's some sort of like 3D drawn geometric shape surrounding this man's face. Yeah, it makes me wonder why Bacon always drew these kind of like squared building type shapes. I think perhaps it's to give it a sense of... Uh... What do you call that when you're afraid of small spaces? Claustrophobic. Yeah, kind of gives like a sense of claustrophobia, perhaps, or an, uh, a relic or an object on display in a glass case. I can't really describe what well, it is, it, but it definitely looks like a lot of his his figures are in these uh, boxes, these clear boxes, or or maybe rooms, small rooms. It makes me think of like you know we were we were watching a documentary about Francis Bacon and. We learned, as well as in some other readings, that he had asthma growing up, and he lived um, on a ranch with his dad. Mm. And his asthma really inhibited from him from doing a lot of things, and he couldn't ride the horses or be in the stable. And so, you know, his dad, his dad abused him. And so, to me, like these geometric shapes, like boxes around a head, kind of remind me of that, like. Um, difficult, like suffocation almost. Wow, that's a great point. You know, like a sense of being trapped, you uh -huh. know? Because, yeah. I mean, uh, and, and I know Bacon had to come out homosexual, and I don't think that was something that his family was uh, particularly pleased about. No, so I'm, I'm pretty sure he got kicked out of the house when he was caught trying on his mom's underwear. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, the point would be that uh, living that lifestyle would definitely be give you a sense of uh, i guess yeah. entrapment or suffocation and it shows in that in that uh in that painting because the man's face is like blurred on one side and his mouth is huge like he's shouting or screaming or something yeah we don't have a name for that work exactly no it's it's study for a portrait i believe okay well maybe that's okay um but I like to, to look at that piece next to one of Hearst's blue paintings. And it's one where there's also a geometric 3D object. And there's a skull sitting in the middle of that with also a knife drawn next to it. And it's all blue and black colors, just like that bacon piece. And there's those you know, hearse polka dots in the background, just white polka dots. Anyway, it's fascinating to see them next to each other. Yeah, I mean, he, Hearst still creates these box shapes these uh, mm -hmm. in the image. But I think the real point is that uh, anytime you see Hearst's early figurative artwork, it's definitely uh, a direct reference to Francis Bacon, in my opinion. It's kind of like a huge ripoff of Francis Bacon, which, in her opinion, is is a good thing. It's you know, great artist steal, as people always say. A thousand years, for example, kind of what I think is like one of his more insightful works of art. It's probably my the the one I find the most disturbing and like shocking. Yeah. Because. Um, you know, like like with the female, the tanks of formaldehyde and animals and such. Like, there's there's no blood, but this one, there's literally blood just like dripping in a puddle on the floor, and these living flies are eating it. It's very, to me, it's the most like, 
whoa. Yeah, so it, the image is a, it's a, what would you say, a big clear box, basically. Mm-hmm. And inside that box is both one of those electric fly killers and a cow's head. And then it just... Which has been skinned and then it's all red and bloody. Um, I don't know that it's been skinned or if oh. the cow or if the it flies have just... It just looks like it's been skinned. Yeah, or if, or if the flies have just been eating it, eating Oof. away at it. Yeah. The, you know, like flies have this short lifespan, you know, and uh, there's so many of them and they multiply and they... Hearst is kind of making a, uh, I guess he's creating his own ecosystem and the short lifespan of these flies is like us being able to watch a thousand years in, in, in human years because you see i guess you see them grow up <laughs> become <laughs> become flies and and eat away at this object and then eventually die and then reproduce again you know yeah and so it, ma- it makes me think of um francis bacon's piece called three studies for crucifixion 1962 and it reminds me because it shows this red room with a hunk of meat in each one of the of the paintings it's actually when i first saw it i didn't realize this but it shows the human body as meat so it's showing um humans as red and just that meaty looking like in a thousand years yeah i mean i think Hearst's paintings are great well they're pretty good better than mine i guess but um <laughs> His interpretation of Bacon's work through his found object sculptures, I think, are are much more successful and profound and uh, revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So Bacon, of course, always has these these images of of uh, meat just cut in half, slabs, just like big yeah. slabs of of beef. You know, like like where you can see the like ribs, like a big rack of ribs, and then you see. Hearst's work of of cows being cut directly in half so you can walk through them. It's, you can see the inside. Yeah, it's of just those animals. so similar. It's just the references yeah. is obvious when when you line them next to each other. What is interesting about Bacon's work is it reminds me like well nowadays all the schools have whiteboards, but you know when there used to be chalkboards and you would take you take your hand or something, ooh, not your fingernails, your hand, and rub your hand on the chalkboard, That's and it kind of blurs things together. That's almost what it looks like in Bacon's work. Yeah, I can totally see that. And then, of course, there's the skulls. Hearst created a painting called The Floating Skull, which is just a bright white human skull um, surrounded by blackness and shades of, of black. And then... Bacon um, has a piece titled Study for Portrait 2, and it's not necessarily a skull because it has the eyelids and, and the lips, but it is this floating head that's completely white and the eyes are closed and the rest of the piece is in darkness. It's interesting to see those two. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But I agree. It's, it's a clear uh, reference. Hurst also created not just paintings of skulls, but also his actual um, diamond-encrusted platinum skull. Yeah. Have you heard about that? Yes. So um, there's somewhere around 8,000 diamonds on it, and he tried... 8,601. Oh, wow. (laughs) And uh, the diamond-encrusted skull was sold to an investment group, I guess, for 
It can't really be a hundred million dollars, is it? Is that really what? That's it is? what I have written down, but my goodness. Well, a hundred million dollars. It was bought by, I guess, an investment group, so it was several people. I don't think one person was willing to drop that much on it. And there's there's some suspicion about about uh, perhaps Hearst being involved in one of those investment groups himself, but. Um, Nevertheless, it's interesting to see Bacon's use of skulls and then Hearst's use of skulls. And I found out that um, Hearst said that he'd, he'd been buying skulls over the internet for his work for, for hundreds of dollars. He continuously bought skulls so that he could paint them and yeah. <laughs> use them. And, and it was somewhat, someone asked him about how he would feel about donating his own skull for art after he died. And he said... I quite like that idea. <laughs> I wouldn't mind my skull being an ashtray or summit. summit. That's just British talk. Oh, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, I agree. I mean, I think that's so interesting. I, I would love to maybe start a foundation one day where instead of donating your, your uh, body to science, you could donate it to art. Yeah, you know? oh, that's cool. That would be an interesting uh, program, I think. Mm-hmm. Man, I think that'd be pretty cool, you know, to have your skull just hanging up in someone's house somewhere. Yeah, that's true. Because, like, I, I'm in the field of science, and so I spent hours and hours in the lab looking at, you know, dead bodies. And we could we would know, like, oh, this is when they were born. This is the occupation that they had. Um, and then we would use them to learn about the parts of the body. But anyway, I never thought about using it as artwork. Mm-hmm. It's like that that um, exhibit you were talking about. The what is it? The, the bodies exhibit. Yeah, yeah. Where it is, it does seem like like both science and then art, especially like with Hearst's work. Yeah, if I had never seen the bodies exhibit, someone just changed the label to Damien Hearst bodies, and then <laughs> and yeah, then some, I believe it. Yeah, and some kind of commentary like. Oh, we are exploring the, uh, the I guess the dissection of, of the human body, blah blah blah. Yeah. Like it, it's basically art in and of itself. You know, yeah. it's just it's so beautiful and interesting and kind of it strange. Is. And uh, that's more than a lot of people can make their art nowadays. Anyways, Great. so I so guess that's Francis Bacon. Yeah, Francis Bacon. But uh, the next person I suppose we should talk about is Jeff Koons. Okay, yeah. So Jeff Koons, he's kind of, he's easy person to dislike <laughs> in the art world. Most people don't like his work. So he's known for like that huge balloon, like carnival yes, balloon. balloon dog. But it's a, yeah, it's a sculpture. And Anyway, yeah, I, I heard about him a while back and that's what I kind of knew him for. And then as I looked more into it, I realized that his artwork expands into, you know, other types. But there's some similarities between it all. But first, I'll just say that Jeff Koons was born January 21st, 1955, in Pennsylvania. Um, He went to the School of Art Institute of Chicago and the Maryland Institute College of Art. And, fun fact, he has seven children. Yes, (laughs) uh, his father was an interior decorator. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. He often was a door-to-door salesman selling vacuum cleaners and other items. Hmm. And, uh, and that's interesting to talk about with his mindset. Absolutely. <laughs> that's definitely his mindset. He 
the way he sees it is he doesn't see himself so much as trying to change people's minds and give them something that they don't want. Instead, he sees himself as uh, a servant of the individual. And his work is often about glorifying everyone, everyone. And everyone has good taste in his eyes. He basically says, if you like something, then that's you shouldn't be ashamed of that. The world is just this meaningless ball that we all <laughs> live on. And if you appreciate something, if you find beauty in something, then you should be able to appreciate it. And uh, so his often his work references really kitschy, overly sweet and pretty kind of creepy objects. Yeah, like lawn ornaments and toys and like weird kitchen appliances and stuff. Yes, he just makes them like gigantic yeah. and over oversized, yeah. you know. So like like you said, um what are what are some objects like uh, inflatable toys? Yeah. Um little ballerina tchotchkes. And actually, he he um he created a sculpture of a of a Popeye toy. And that sculpture was sold for $28.2 million. Wow. When it was like an exact replication of this Popeye toy. Yeah, it was just bigger, you know? Yeah. And I mean, a lot of artists don't necessarily pride themselves in craftsmanship. Jeff Koons certainly does. He has a factory where he has artists making things with, with exact precision one could say that that's the way that he's able to sell those objects because some rich person with with no taste, let's say, um, <laughs> would see his artwork and be like, oh, wow, it's such a pretty object and it has no meaning, but that's fine. But also, look how well it's made. You have to respect this because of how well it's made. And I wonder, too, if it has something to do a little bit, like, with nostalgia. Like, people are familiar with a lot of the the subjects of his art. Mm, yeah, but... it's, it's like, very approachable. And that's mm-hmm. what he wants his art to be. He wants it to be something approachable. He doesn't want to feel like art is inside joke that you can't be a part of because you're not part of the club. Mm, yeah. And I have a quote from Koontz. He said... I try to educate people about materialism through my work. I try to show them real visual luxury. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. I'm not and, sure what that means. What and, do you think that well, means? Well, it's fascinating to use the word luxury there, visual luxury, because we do know that the, this artwork is being sold to very wealthy people. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's definitely unattainable by basically everyone except for the 1% of the world the real money makers the billionaires out there but at what point is art not a luxury i feel like he's just the only person who's willing to admit that art is a luxury yeah i don't know i mean he does make things like colorful and shiny and so you see it as a luxury item because it's overly pointless and useless and there's almost not a lot of a lot of people think that their art their paintings will cure cancer or something well and and i don't think that a a lot of people would call a dead cow's head a visual luxury hmm you know that terminology but sure but luxury items are shiny and and beautiful and and i think that's That's what i can yeah okay yeah that makes sense you know one of his earlier 
sculptures that I think was totally amazing was inspired by Duchamp. He had the uh, Duchamp, of course, was the pioneer of the ready-made object. I forget the name of the show, but one of Kuhn's earlier shows was called The New or something along those lines. Something The New. He showed these vacuum cleaners that were brand new and had this light shining on them. This and is Duchamp? No, this, no, this is Coons. This is Coons who did this. Oh, yeah, because he was a salesman yeah, he selling was, vacuums. He was a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> and so his, his point was just showing like this pristine object, this luxury item, this, this object that is brand new. It's the newest vacuum you could get at the time. And, of course, now those, those vacuums look so obsolete or vintage, old, or whatever. Yeah. It was kind of uh, a discussion on the new, on the on the luxury, on the materialistic object, which I feel like a lot of people, a lot of artists, at least, aren't willing to admit that their art is just a material object, is a luxury item, even if it does give insight and meaning to people's lives. And it changes the way they see the world. It's still so expensive that it's a luxury item that only very few of us can afford right. to even look right. at. Right, like his balloon dog yeah. in 2013 sold for just over $58 million at an wow. auction. Okay, so uh, another thing I wanted to mention about this whole idea of luxury and the materialistic. Hearst is definitely accused of this as well. I saw a show of his recently. It was called uh, Treasures from the Wreck of the Unbelievable, I believe. It was... Oh, uh, is that the Mickey Mouse? Yes. Yes, he is like uh, Mickey Mouse covered in coral and like all these objects, kind of like luxury items or just like giant sculptures covered in coral. And it was like this idea of things that people collect and they collect hidden treasures found from underneath the ocean. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's kind of like these contemporary objects that are um, uncovered from the ocean. So there's literally like gold coins and like fake Egyptian relics that he was just reselling, that he made himself. They're all contemporary. And he was just reselling them for a huge price, basically, because that's what, that's what his art is to a lot of people. It's a historical object. It's a, it's a materialistic relic. It's a, a trophy that, that someone has purchased. And you think purchased. that Coons shares that same Absolutely. mentality. Yes. Absolutely, they share yeah. that same mentality. I mean, I thought I thought that when I saw, like, her work, these, uh, like, the Mickey Mouse one, for example, I've thought a lot about that because I've seen how Coons uses kind of, like, toys and such as his subjects. and Just, like, popular yeah. imagery. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's a sculpture of, um, like, a... It looks like a mermaid, but it's a topless sculpture of a woman, and she's carrying Pink Panther yes. in her arms. <laughs> yeah, it's like so intentionally uh, in tacky. Yeah, taste. that's how. Yeah, that's. But um, I just want Coons to say that. That's all I want. I want him to. Just, <laughs> I want him just, to say those words. And that's all we ask. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, I, it's not that. It's not that uh, his work can be interpreted. You know. Uh, as that but Coons just won't say it he won't say yes I'm using intentionally tacky objects in order to make a point that taste is uh, not only relative but arbitrary 
Yeah. For for example, there's there's three pieces that Coons did. One of them is called chain link fence. It's literally a chunk of chain link fence with two um, what looks like inflatable turtles that go in the pool. Yeah, just like floaty up. And he puts it on this fence. And then there's another one called the caterpillar ladder where it's a normal metal ladder with a blow up colorful kids caterpillar. Yes, this was some of his... In, in the rims. Yes, yeah. this was some of his earliest work as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe not these images, but the idea of using inflatable toys yeah. was some of his earliest work. And now he makes those inflatables out of steel. And so they look like they're inflatable. Yeah, it looks like you can just pop them, you know, and yet they're going to last an eternity, you know. Yeah. And uh, so it definitely has references to mortality and staring at death at least that's how hearst would look at it. well i didn't think about that before like yeah you if you have a sculpture um like there's there's one of his where it's the hulk with um like organ keys all over it's called like the organ hulk or something (laughs) but um it's it's i never thought about how if it's an inflatable it is not going to last like it's going to it's going to maybe fade or deflate mm-hmm. but you can create he, he's created sculptures that look like they're inflatables or, or balloons or um, or whatnot but they're going to last longer so <laughs> another fun fact just just talking about like these toys that that Coons uses he went to go see the crudes the the movie with his family and then it got like he he wrote this um review of the movie and it got like published everywhere and he says it's a beautiful moment of enlightenment as the family experiences this growth and evolution i walked out of the theater feeling that my family and i could feel a greater connection to what it means to be human and to face the challenges that we confront in being part of the ongoing story so i thought it was really interesting um it it, it makes sense in my mind that he's this dad that goes to the movies with his kids and then he goes back and makes this whimsical artwork yeah yeah i think he definitely wants to to i mean like the crudes i have no idea what what reviews it got on Rotten Tomatoes, but... <laughs> That's but, all we care about, no. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, maybe it didn't do good, and I don't think he cares about that. In fact, I think that's the reason he would talk about a movie like that, like some kid's movie that no one cares about, is uh, he's trying to, first of all, be a contrarian, and just, it's cool to say that if you're if you're in the art world, you, the most rebellious thing you can do is, like, watch reality TV, you know? <laughs> because... It's not rebellious to, I guess, put a urinal in the middle of a room and call it artwork. That's that's actually, you know, it's glorified. Yeah, consider cool. <laughs> <laughs> but it is totally uncool to like objects. It's it, the way to be most contrarian is is to appreciate um, the material and the shallow. Mm-hmm. And that's reflected in his artwork. And, and at the same time, like, I want to say like, oh, it shows he's such like a family guy and everything. But at the same time, he does have some works that, um, aren't necessarily No, they're considered. not exactly family friendly. <laughs> yeah. In fact, he, he married a, uh, porn star and, uh, they're, they're divorced now. But at the time he, 
and actually before he married her, I think he made a group of works with this porn star where it's the most uh, explicit that a picture could be. Basically, it shows like penetration and everything like that. It's just these like really strange, ultra um, bright and colorful pornographic images of him having sex with this porn which star. is so disturbing to me especially <laughs> especially because he has this whole side of it, of his work that seems so um like it would be seen at a, a children's museum yeah, on like the front lawn you know <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's just like this level of like creepiness that's definitely I feel is intentional in his work, even though you'll never hear him say that. Yeah, yeah, um, and and he he once said, "When people make judgments, they close all possibility around them." And he said, "What I try to do every day of my life is to make an object that you can't make any judgment about," hmm. which I thought was really fascinating. I don't understand that. Let's see here. So he's, How do you I, not make judgments about his art? People judge his art all the time. I know, but apparently Is he, he trying says, to say that he's trying to make people uh, not judge others and judge other artwork or feel judged by looking at art? Yeah, I think he, he wants people to look at his art and not judge Oh, look not, at art not in judge general. if it's good or not, it's just because it's... it's. Well, he just says that if they make judgments, they close all possibility around them. So he, he doesn't want people... To, to to make these judgments, yeah, which but I he think thinks is his, He thinks his art is good, though. He he says it. He says, "I think this artwork is particularly great." Mm-hmm. You know, like that's something he'll say about his artwork. And if that's the case, then that means that he thinks that there's artwork that's not particularly great. So I would love to ask him sometime, "What do you think is not good art?" Yeah, because, that would be fascinating. Yeah, because I mean, there's no way he would be able to answer that straight up. Mm-hmm. You know, which I think is is still a really great way to challenge the art world. Yeah. Um, so then relating, you know, Coons and Hearst, I found um, uh, a, a stainless steel uh, sculpture by Hearst. Uh, it's a self-portrait made in, in 2006. And it's just the, the head and it's this bright pink color. And then Coons has a sculpture. It's called the... Balloon Venus Magenta 08. That's that same uh, bright pink, um, almost kind of sh- you know shiny looking material. I found it interesting that that those two sculptures um, have such similarities. In their bright pinkness. Uh huh. Yeah. Because I mean, Hearst has a lot. Hearst doesn't have a lot of um, these bright bodily sculptures. Things. Yeah, that are that are bright pink mm. like that. Uh, later in Hearst's work, like for example, the polka dot paintings, a lot of people right. criticize them as as just like a, a shameless money grab. Since Hearst doesn't, not only does he not paint them, but he doesn't even decide what color the polka dots will be painted. Oh, I didn't know that. I know he gets like a lot of cred from people because he's not the one making them, but I didn't even realize that he doesn't choose the color. No, not... Uh... I mean, he occasionally paints some of them, and those ones are worth more, which Hearst thinks is kind of a, a funny quirk of the market, I guess. That's true. But, I mean, I guess I would want 
you'd want something that's actually painted by him. Yeah, yeah. And not just like a polka dot painting right. that was well, made randomly by someone in his studio. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, it, it's fascinating. But when did he start painting those polka dots? Um, I don't know. Like... He was he was very interested in color from the very beginning. Okay. Um, like was it was it in the earlier days? Because I know he did. For example, he did his first formaldehyde uh, sculpture in 1991 called "The Physical Impossibility of Death in the Mind of Someone Living." And that's the one of the shark. That was in 1991. That was his first formaldehyde piece. Yes. Interesting. I believe so. Yeah, I think you're right. And so the polka dots came later. But I don't yeah. know how much farther later. I don't yeah. think it was too far after that show. Yeah. He um, probably doing all this like dark artwork. He's like, I gotta get some polka dots in my life. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's something, <laughs> that's a really good point to make is that Andy Warhol mm-hmm. or Salvador Dali, they were also working as illustrators and designers just because, I mean, like artists don't necessarily need to be branded as the dark, thoughtful artist. Like, maybe half of Hearst's work is dark and thoughtful, and the other half is just fun and commercial. I like that. You know, I like that there's not this, like, very specific brand identity that he mm-hmm. must maintain, but he's opened up. Yeah. So so that shark was in 1991, and then in 1990, or 1985, Coons created... Um, this sculpture, it's called One Ball, Two Ball, Three Ball, Equilibrium Tank Mounted to Steel Table. So the salt and water inside the tank allows the, the basketballs to float um, in the water. And so there's one with one basketball, another tank with two, and then with three. And um, it's able, it has to be cleaned regularly, and the water has to be replaced it's kind of fascinating also thinking about um, Hearst sculptures with formaldehyde in a tank and also his like cow's head where that does that need to be cleaned or replaced like would the the cow grow mold on it? Yeah, I mean eventually <laughs> it'll be eaten to the bone, I suppose. Yeah, just these interesting observations yeah but uh i guess the thing with those with the so it's the floating basketballs in a tank of water yes basically Uh so that coons made that work before hearst made his right so 19 so coons made those basketballs in 1985 and then hearst created his floating uh In, in 1991 Interesting. So, yeah, for some reason in my mind, I thought, like, Hearst is the first one who did this, and then maybe Coons kind of was inspired, but it I... It seems to be the other way around, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, perhaps. What would you like to talk about next? We could talk about Sarah Lucas. Great, yeah. She was born in 1962 in the United Kingdom. She was also part of the, the young British artists who came out of Goldsmith College. And her artwork has a lot of the same traits as Hearst's, which is hers seem to be with a little bit more of a sense of humor. But Hearst definitely has a sense of humor. You know, he Hearst was uh, was in an interview with someone. I believe it was Charlie Rose or someone. And and someone he was basically asking like, what is art? Like, how is something art? Like, what makes an object art? And Hearst says, you know, it's just like it's the way people see it. It's the context you put something in. And he said that. Uh, it's like, for example, if you were to take a zucchini, put a zucchini and Vaseline in someone's shopping cart and watch them check out and see the reaction. 
you know? Who said that? Hearst said oh that. Oh my gosh, he? I haven't heard that. Yeah, he says like that that reaction, it's just, it gives those those abstract objects uh, a, a whole new meaning. A whole new meaning, yeah. you know, which is very crude. And, and the interviewer asked Hearst, well, have you done that? And he says, yeah, I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, yeah, yeah then that... That that makes me understand a little bit more the relationship between Sarah Lucas and Damien Hurst because Sarah, Sarah's artwork is how would you describe it? Man, I would say penises and vaginas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's very sexual. It's but it's also uh, done with a sense of humor. You know, a lot of her work has to do with I guess what someone might consider the the human condition and especially uh, sexuality and maleness and femaleness. Yeah. Damien Hirst and Sarah Lucas did a collaboration together. It was called, the show was called God Saves the Queen. And it, yes, God Saved the Queen. Uh-huh. And it was in, in 2017. Um, and it was the first time that these young British artists were together in a, a two-person exhibition. Now, I don't know too much about the exhibition. I guess, like, how their work relates for what, what the curation would be like exactly. Like, what the theme would be. Because it seems a little bit, like, like all over. Yeah. For example, one of the pieces is Damien Hirst has a skeleton that's placed on, on four big sheets of vertical glass. And then he also, though, has one of his, one of his spin paintings... And a polka dot painting. Yeah, I don't see the connection. And between... then Sarah Lucas has what's Sorry. what's called a, a photograph, nineteen ninety eight, called "Human Toilet Revisited," where it's a woman sitting on a toilet with She's her feet on the cigarette. seat. Yeah, smoking a cigarette. Well, uh, her work is definitely uh, well. As far as this show goes, I don't know too much about it. I've never yeah. actually seen this before. The two speak the same language. As far as like the way that they, the way that they approach communication is the same. You know, they take an mm. object, they recontextualize it, and they ask themselves, okay, what does this mean? What does this say about about life and our our condition here in life? You know, mm-hmm. and as Hearst is obsessed with death, Sarah Lucas is often obsessed with death. I mean, she always has cigarettes, tons of cigarettes as her artwork, which I guess she relates that a lot to Freud who, who yeah. talks a lot about the subconscious and subconscious symbols and how smoking is kind of a mixture of self-destruction and pleasure. And yeah, just like what you said, there is um, a sculpture of hers where it is legs spread open with a cigarette stuck in the mi- middle of this female's body part. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know the ex- how. I mean, that obviously could be interpreted a lot of ways, but right. has but- a lot to do with first of all the the phallic masculine uh, aspects of cigarettes and how men are self destructive, but also it's kind of how sexuality can be this aspect of pleasure and self destruction as mm-hmm. well, like combining the body and these cigarettes and. Yeah, so you you were talking about a piece yeah. um, by her. Well, there's there's a lot of pieces I love by her, but one is is uh this chair that's just looks like it's been totally it's been burnt up basically. It's this oh, okay. chair that's been burnt up. And then there's like this motorcycle helmet on top and the motorcycle helmet is made completely out of or completely covered in cigarettes. 
you know, she, like she makes a lot of objects that are burnt out, like burnt out cars, burnt up chairs, smashed windows. It has something to do with self-destruction and violence. And she smokes and she, I believe she's always felt suicidal or depressed at least. Definitely this idea of of depression, of self-destruction, mm. of burnt For out For some cars. reason that's on her mind, you know? Yeah. I do know that um, I, I was reading that she's uh, especially struggled ever since her ex-boyfriend hung himself in 2008. And that kind of reminds me of the toilet sculpture that she has. Yeah, I don't really know too much about what this means. But well, she has it, this toilet that's on the inside. It says, is suicide genetic? She usually shows herself in self-portraits as very uh, macho. You know, kind of like the macho artist in a mm-hmm, lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But whenever she's talking about men or human in general, it often has this side of self-destruction or vulnerability and and i think like like some of her work is so shocking i think sarah lucas definitely has some pieces that are also create that shock when the audience sees it would you agree yeah she's definitely irreverent you know there's a lot of work that like she has a a table with uh or she has a self-portrait with that's that's a better one to describe. She's just a, <laughs> she just has a self portrait with fried eggs just sitting on her chest, and it's kind of like this like silly. It's like a silly way that that like we objectify each other. Like the fact that a, a fried egg or something the shape of a fried egg could mm-hmm. be could be considered an object of desire is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. But and just like it's kind I, of how we how people look at each other. I will never forget. A, a shark cut in half just like i will never forget lucas's um chair made of boobs yeah <laughs> that she like has a picture of her sitting in you know is <laughs> there's just some some certain things you can't you cannot forget yeah there's just a certain level of shock value that a lot of people find to be cheap or pointless or a way just to get in the newspaper i would say you know as long as there's meaning behind shock it's it's a good way to make art. But well, it, and a lot of times it's it's it might be you know shocking because it it hasn't been done before or portrayed before you know. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. As far as Hearst Shark goes, I remember he was talking about it and he's saying like, yeah, a lot of people look at it and say like, oh, that's not art, but it's really cool. Or he says that like, of course, kids. Uh, if a kid were to walk into his art show and see giant shark with its mouth wide open and children are, are gonna love that you know and so like yeah. there's i'm like, trying to think of our, our little nephew would yeah yeah find it so fascinating yeah but there's just like this aspect of like oh we've trained ourselves to not think that this is art we've trained ourselves to not get any type of meaning or or feeling out of these works but uh clearly you can it's natural yeah yeah <laughs> it's kind of like this raw simple way of looking at art Of course, there's lots of other artists that Hearst relates to. I don't know how many we're going to hit on or or really talk in depth about. But of course, there's Duchamp. Duchamp is kind of any any conceptual artist or ready-made artist owes it all to Duchamp, (laughs) or at least yeah. Because he he so he was born in 1887 in France, 
Then he died in France in 1968. And he's, like we were saying earlier, just kind of this father of using everyday items as sculpture. Yeah, he's the one who came up with the idea. Or, I mean, it's kind of debated recently whether he is the one. But let's say he's the one who came up with the idea of declaring an object a work of art and therefore it is. Yeah. And so some of his pieces, there's like a bottle rack where that's Mm -hmm. all it is. Or a bicycle wheel, which it's a bicycle wheel on a white stool. Yeah. Or a a urinal tipped sideways. Right. Or um, a shovel. Mm-hmm. And and Hearst does that that same thing. W- one thing I'm thinking of is he has a piece called um, Signification, Hope, Immortality, and Death in Paris, Now and Then. came out in 2014, and it's a cupboard full of random objects, kind of like Duchamp did as well, but it has um, random bottles in it, Birds, small but- toys, and yeah, uh-huh. skulls. And so it's that idea. Kind of just like just, the objects that he yeah, likes to associate himself with. Exactly. And it just becomes artwork. Duchamp has that Mona Lisa piece where he's painted on a curly mustache and a goatee, a goatee onto Mona Lisa. So just creating like this, you know, the Mona Lisa and making it a little more silly, I guess is the word that I have for yeah, it. Yeah, to mock it almost. Yeah, yeah. And then, so I don't know, maybe just this kind of idea of taking these iconic figures and then, yeah, turning them, and not maybe to mock them, but make it more lighthearted, I guess. Sure. Um, one thing I wanted to mention was a, a kind of a funny story I heard Hearst tell about his artwork. Someone uh, vandalized one of his his sculptures of a lamb that was i guess in formaldehyde oh yeah the lamb head or was it the full lamb i think it was just the lamb oh yeah yeah uh-huh and um the thing about it is uh so some guy dumped a bunch of black ink in it to ruin it basically oh, man. i'm sure he probably just didn't like the idea of of a little lamb being killed and used in a work of art which is understandable i suppose but his lawyer the lawyer of this man i guess asked hearst in court he said so what would you say a work of conceptual art is and hearst is like well it's a work of art where the idea is the art and the object isn't and so the lawyer thought he had he thought he had him you know he was like so would you consider yourself a, a conceptual artist or a traditional artist and Hearst was like, I'm a traditional artist. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason why is you look at Hearst's work and, I mean, it may compel you and it may be made out of objects from every day or maybe made from someone else. But they're traditional in the aspect that the material itself is important. And Hearst, of course, sees himself as, as a man who makes material objects, <laughs> even luxury items. We hope you've enjoyed listening to our conversation and stick with us to explore beyond the art world and into the realms of music, architecture, design, and film.